If you'd never heard the Easter story before, if it was totally new to you, what might be most striking is the way it so dramatically swings from one great reversal to another. The crowds who praise Jesus on Palm Sunday and then condemn him on Good Friday. The friends at the Last Supper who promise to stand by Jesus, steadfast and loyal, who then betray and desert him just a few hours later. And of course, the most famous reversal, the way death itself is somehow undone into resurrection and new life. Defeat transformed into victory. But there's another reversal hidden among and within these others, perhaps the most subversive of them all. It's the way God doesn't just counter Jesus' opponents in the story, but also gracefully, defiantly co-ops them, includes them, transforming their efforts into part of the wider story of redemption. In a way, this is the ultimate reversal, the most gracious response imaginable to a hostile attack. Not to acquiesce, of course, but also not merely to conquer or destroy. Instead, God takes the sword and refashions it into a plowshare. It's as if God says, look, your hate, your contempt, your violence, it can't win. I've remade it. Even the force you're putting behind what you think is a sword, look, it's plowing the ground. Even your hatred has been co-opted and transformed and now serves the cause of love. This is part four of our seven-part series on understanding Easter. And in this episode, we'll take a closer look at this great reversal, this subversive, transformative vision of the Easter story. It's a journey that will take us to Japan, to 17th century England, to 1980s New York City, and to Nazi Germany. Not only the Nazis of the 20th century, but also the neo-Nazis of the 21st. And along the way, we'll explore one of the most famous and also misunderstood verses in the New Testament, John 3.16, a citation frequently seen on placards at sporting events and other public gatherings and in graffiti along the roadsides. It reads, For God so loved the world that God gave his only Son. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. Let's start in Japan. The centuries-old martial art, Jujutsu, and its more modern offshoot, Judo, both begin with the Japanese word Ju, which means softness or gentleness. The basic idea here is that gentleness is actually more powerful than aggression. And in the context of a hostile attack, the most effective response is to creatively co-opt and redirect the attacker's energy against itself. Imagine an opponent lunging forward, attempting to strike. Rather than meeting the blow head-on with brute force, the judo master might deftly, creatively step to one side, using the force and momentum of the attacker's own blow to help throw the attacker off balance, and ultimately to help neutralize and disarm the attack. The founder of judo combined this word ju with a word that comes from the same root as the Chinese word dao or way. Judo, in other words, means the gentle way. 
a martial arts, and also a philosophy of life. According to this line of thought, whatever hostility we may encounter, physical, emotional, or otherwise, the most powerful way is the gentle way, the way of opposing the attack by co-opting and transforming it, using it against itself, like a vaccine makes use of a disease in order to inoculate against it. The gentle way, we might say, is to creatively transform and incorporate the problem itself into part of the solution. In 2014, the small German town of Wunsiedel had a problem. Because Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess, had once been buried there in the town cemetery, Wunsiedel had become a place of pilgrimage for neo-Nazis all over Europe. And for decades, far-right extremists marched through town in an annual neo-Nazi parade, much to the chagrin of the townsfolk themselves. They tried everything, blocking streets, closing shops, closing shutters. But in 2014, they decided to try something new. They welcomed the marchers. They painted a starting line on the far side of the main street where the marchers typically came into town and a finish line on the other side where they typically left town. And they created and publicized what they called Germany's Most Involuntary Walkathon, a fundraiser for the organization Exit Deutschland, devoted to helping people escape extremist groups, including, of course, white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups. And so, within this new transformative framework, with every step the extremist marchers took, the walkathon raised more and more money to help people escape extremism. And so the crowds cheered. They were holding up signs that said, thank you for your donations. The news media took note, word spread, and over 10,000 euros were raised that day. In a gentle, subversive act of transformation and good humor, the citizens of Wunsiedel deftly, creatively stepped to one side, making use of the problem itself as part of the solution. They certainly weren't the first. During World War II, in the Nazi death camps, Prisoners were classified and dehumanized with a system of inverted triangles in different colors, badges sewn into their prison uniforms. Jews, for example, were forced to wear two yellow triangles, forming a Star of David. Political prisoners were forced to wear red triangles. Roma were forced to wear black or brown triangles. And homosexuals were forced to wear pink triangles. Decades later, LGBTQ activists in Miami and New York City reclaimed the pink triangle as a symbol of solidarity, both literally and figuratively reversing it by turning it upside down. The very sign, the very shape and color used to separate and destroy would now be used to build solidarity, pride, and political action. It was both a reminder of the devastation of the past and a defiant refusal to be imprisoned by it. The activists fiercely, deftly, creatively stepped to one side and seized the initiative. 
Once you begin to look for this basic cultural judo, you can find it everywhere. Hateful epithets and slurs, for example, co-opted and embraced by the groups they're intended to oppress, a move that simultaneously drains the hateful term of its power and transforms it into an act of defiance, pride, and community, part of the problem remade into part of the solution, swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. We will not forget the past, nor will we be imprisoned by it. We'll rally around the very thing meant to divide us. We'll enlist the forces of hate into a walkathon of love. We'll creatively, gracefully step to one side, harnessing and transforming a hostile attempt to ruin into a part of the story of redemption. As the Israelites wander in the wilderness in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, there are nearly a dozen stories about people complaining or rebelling along the way. And as we might expect, the very last of these stories is the most serious of them all. The Israelites are hungry and impatient. They complain against God, their liberator, and against Moses, their shepherd, accusing them of bringing us out into the wilderness to die. Though they've been given manna to eat daily, they cry, there is no food, and also, we detest this miserable food. As if to manifest the poisonous, bitter, self-contradictory character of their complaints, God sends deadly serpents to slither among them, wreaking havoc. The people promptly and self-servingly confess and plead for help, and God directs Moses to fashion a serpent out of bronze and lift it up on a pole so that any bitten Israelite can look at the serpent of bronze and live. Did you catch it? An image of the deadly serpent, a manifestation of their self-destructive complaints, the very thing from which they sought deliverance, an image of that thing is the remedy. The problem is remade into part of the solution. The menace is reversed into medicine. Look at the serpent of bronze and live. And this strange and ancient story, Jesus says, is a key for understanding the cross. In the last episode, we explored the story in the Gospel of John of how Jesus clears out the merchants and the money changers from the Jerusalem temple as the inauguration of his public ministry. As John tells it, shortly after this provocative disturbance of the peace, a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus by night. Nicodemus knows the library of Hebrew scripture well. He knows the prophet Zechariah. And now that he's seen Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey and his clearing out of the traitors from the temple grounds, he's begun to suspect that Jesus may indeed have come from God, as he puts it, although he's not yet convinced. He has questions. And so he and Jesus embark on a late-night clandestine conversation and Jesus tries to persuasively explain his identity and mission. How? By way of an old story they both know well, the story of the Israelites and the bronze serpent in the wilderness. 
to understand me, Jesus says, look through this lens. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the child of humanity must be lifted up. A clear reference to the cross and also to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. God saves not the best and the brightest and the well-behaved, but precisely those who complain and rebel and confess in self-serving ways. God saves, in other words, with grace. The old story is about nothing if not the Israelites' relentless complaints, their lack of trust, their self-absorption, their sin, and on the other hand, God's patience, God's fidelity, God's generosity, and God's grace. God saves them not because of their performance, but despite it. And look how God does it, by turning a sword into a plowshare. God remakes the worst thing into the best, the deadly serpent itself recast in bronze into an instrument of healing. It's at this point in the story of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that he delivers the famous line, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, the Greek word here is cosmos, for God so loved the cosmos, the world, that God gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. And then the next line, John 3.17, which is inseparable from it, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the cosmos, into the world, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Which brings us, of course, to 17th century England. In those days, in 17th century English, the word so frequently meant in this way, as in like so, or so help me God. In the King James Version of the Bible, then, it made perfect sense to translate the Greek word hutos, or in this way, with the English word so. And that's exactly what the translators did in John 3.16. But today, we more often use so to mean very, or to a large extent, as in, I'm so sad, or she's so smart. Thus, the verse is often misunderstood today as a statement about the extent or degree of God's love, as if it says, For God loved the world so much that... Whereas it's actually a statement about the way or the pattern of God's love, as in, For God loved the world in this way. For God loved the world in this way. What way? This way, of creative transformation, swords into plowshares. This way, of recasting in bronze the consequences of our sin and making that very image the source of our salvation. Likewise, Jesus says, understand me. Likewise, understand the cross. The cross the instrument of Roman imperial torture and execution, the worst thing in the world from a Jewish point of view in first century Palestine, that very thing, the cross, recasted in bronze, in silver, in gold, put it around your neck as a piece of jewelry or up on the chancel in the front of the church and look at it. 
the crucifixion, the consequences of our sin, our ways of betrayal and violence. Look at it, the empty cross, testimony that God transforms even our worst into part of the story of redemption. Remember, while God could have saved the Israelites by having them look upon any object at all, or in some other way entirely, the chosen remedy is to look upon a bronze serpent. A vivid reminder, even in the midst of healing and restoration, of two things. First, the deadly self-destructive nature of sin, and second, God's gracious transformation of the world for the love of the world. For God so loved the world. For God loved the world in this way, this creative way, this transformative way, this gentle way. And likewise, the Christian cross can play this dual role, reminding us, first, of the many ways we turn against each other in violence and betrayal, and second, of God's graceful, peaceful forgiveness and deliverance. Understood from this angle, the cross is a poetic proclamation. God is turning the world around, redeeming even the worst of the worst, swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, serpents into sources of healing, crosses into trees of life, making all things, all things, new. That's the way God loves the world. The whole world, not just some of it. Jesus doesn't say, God hates the world but loves the remnant of those who believe. No, Jesus says, God loves the world, the cosmos. And in that old story, when God provides the remedy of the bronze serpent, the strategy isn't to save a few well-deserving Israelites, but rather to save everyone, as the story puts it, everyone who had turned against God and then, for arguably less than noble reasons, pleaded with God for rescue. In other words, their salvation wasn't earned. On the contrary, it was a graceful gift. And finally, as if to clarify this very question, in the next verse, John 3:17, Jesus underlines that God sends the Son not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In what way does God love the world? In this way, God graciously delivers humankind and indeed the whole creation from the self-destruction of sin. The cross, Jesus suggests, poetically proclaims this astounding idea, the very thing, the worst thing in the world, the epitome of human hatred and cruelty, the cross is transformed into a declaration of God's love and mercy for the sake of all, even and especially those who are caught up in sin's self-destruction. In short, God loves graciously, mercifully, gently, and universally for the sake of the cosmos, the whole wide world. 
The March of Hatred Remade into a Walkathon, a fundraiser supporting the loving liberation from hatred. The pink triangle turned upside down, or rather right side up, into a rallying point of solidarity, pride, and action. The poisonous serpent recast in bronze. The Roman imperial method of execution recast as a proclamation of good news. Confronted with a hostile attack, God deftly, creatively steps to one side, co-opting and transforming the worst we can do into an astonishing, radiant sign of God's fierce and gentle grace, drawing us in and sending us out into the great reversal, the martial art, the peaceful art of redemption. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Pablo J. Garman and Blue Dot Sessions. And if you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. Drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. Let us know what you think. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.